Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with the convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we're living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified revolutionary optimism as an infectious, contagious, self-created way of thinking and living on the path of love, where you unleash your personal power and you hashtag unify with others to build movements that catalyze bold and transformational political action while putting love at the center for our collective repair, justice, and peace. On this podcast, Dr. Zeitz is working to provide you with perspectives from leaders fighting for equity, justice, and peace on their strategies, insight, and tools for overcoming adversity and driving forward bold and transformative solutions with unbridled revolutionary optimism and real-world pragmatism. In this episode, Dr. Zeitz is talking with 2024 presidential candidate Marion Williamson, a political activist and spiritual leader whose transformative journey has made a lasting impact on both personal and societal levels. Williamson is a world-renowned author of many books, including Healing the Soul of America and The Politics of Love, where she shares her political vision for our country. With a unique blend of political and historical insight, Marianne Williamson has emerged as a leader who is advocating for putting love at the center of our social, economic, and political systems. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Thanks for joining me, Marianne. Is it okay if I call you Marianne? Oh, please call me Marianne, and thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I just want to have like a conversation like we're in our living rooms and a heart-to-heart conversation so that uh, my listeners can get to know you and connect with you as you are an important political leader in our times. So first of all, I want to say congratulations. I understand you just became a grandmother. I did. I did. Little Elizabeth, right? She's a week old. Oh, my God. What was that like, meeting your granddaughter? She's a beautiful child. I'm thrilled to see my daughter become a mother, and she and her husband are great. It's, it's you know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Very blessed. Yeah, I just had, uh, I have two grandchildren, a three-year-old and a ten-and-a-half-month-old little girl, and when uh, Birdie Lou was born, I had this, like, awareness, like, uh, when she was going to be 80, uh, roughly 80, it would be 2100, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, what are we going to be offering to her? You know, what kind of future? And so it really kind of like drove me to be relentless in my pursuit of repair, justice, and peace. So I wonder how having a granddaughter is affecting you. I know you're already unleashed uh, in your drive, but has it, has it altered you in any way? Well, I had a strong sense of what you just said when I became a mother. 
I felt a stronger sense of relationship to my ancestors as well as my great-great-grandchildren. I felt when I became a mother that I was part of the string of history in a way that I never had before. And of course, with my grandchild, on a certain level, even more so. But, you know, one of the things that has very much disturbed me that I experienced last time I ran for president, and I experience it now, is how many young people around the age of my daughter will raise their hand when I ask and say, under normal circumstances, they would choose to have children, but that the condition in the world, particularly the climate and the the condition of the planet is so terrible that they don't feel that it's an irresponsible thing to do. Now, people like my daughter and son-in-law take the view of the revolutionary optimist, right? (laughs) And the evolutionary optimist. But I understand how many young people, particularly in the United States, feel differently And that is extremely, extremely disturbing. And what it means, of course, is that when they think of what you just said, their grandchildren at the year 2100, they do not feel confident that it will be a survivable planet. And that should make us all extremely sober and take it very seriously. Agreed. And um, I'm I'm doing a deep dive into the climate emergency right now uh, in my own work. And what I've learned is that we're going to hit 1.5 degrees of warming before 2020. Jim Hansen, the famous scientist, is coming out with a new paper very soon. And the warming is much faster than uh, the official uh, experts are uh, reporting, and that we might hit two degrees before 2050. And that means that uh, we don't know whether this planet will be survivable for future generations. And that's like our children and grandchildren's lifetime. I think a lot of people have not allowed themselves to paint the picture in their minds of what that means. It means that entire swaths of continents could become uninhabitable. Implosions of ecosystem, implosion of of the food supply, implosion of the economic system. And it could move hundreds of millions of climate refugees away from those parts of the planet, struggling to get into other areas that are at the time more habitable. And when you consider the reactions that could um, that could come from places that don't feel that they could absorb all those refugees. It's a horrifying possibility. Yeah, it will be destabilizing for sure, including here in the United States. There'll have to be managed retreat in coastal areas where sea levels will be rising. And so my question for you really is, as president, would you declare a climate emergency? And what would that mean to you? How would you mobilize the federal government and the, use the bully pulpit as you as you will have to mobilize a, a a response that is equal to the challenge that we face. Well, first of all, it is an emergency. So the first thing is is how you can use the bully pulpit to help people understand that it's an emergency. Now, for a president to actually declare an emergency means that the president is using the uh, powers of the executive branch to override. Uh, what would otherwise be the free market and the rights of corporations, et cetera, to do what it is that they do. So that's a very serious step to take. But let's talk about what the situation actually is. We're living at a time when because of the emergency, whether you declare it a a legal emergency or not, it is an emergency. Because of that, this is now time for us to ramp down, not ramp up fossil fuel extraction. So we have a president now who has said that he recognizes that climate change is an existential crisis. However, he's given more uh, oil drilling permits than even Trump did. He has approved the Willow Project. 
and he has uh, given permission for the exportation of liquefied natural gas. So people need to understand what this means. What this means is that even though there has been very healthy investment in green energy in the Inflation Reduction Act, all of that investment, the effects of that investment are nullified, both by the $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction project on the North Slope of Alaska, and also uh, our gargantuan defense budget. The U.S. defense establishment is the single largest institutional emitter of carbon emissions that there is on the planet. So this cannot be tolerated and live in good faith with our grandchildren. It simply cannot be. I would do my best uh, to work uh, in public-private partnership uh, with big oil. I would work my be- uh, do my best to sit down and say, look, we could do this together. You can help me make a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. We are going to do it. We can work together, which is basically how Franklin Roosevelt handled his relationships with industry during World War II. He needed the planes, he needed the tanks, he needed the trucks, and he could know you're not going to make cars and then get around to helping me win the war. But he knew he had to work with them. Mm-hmm. I would offer that. Let's work together. If we do not work together, I am going to declare an emergency. We'll give it that one shot first. And uh, if I could not get the kind of cooperation necessary, then absolutely I would be willing to declare a climate emergency. Let's be very clear. If we do not get about the business of saving this planet, then what will happen within the next 10 or 20 years is we will have a climate dictator. And you don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I realized like during the COVID emergency uh, that we lived through recently, we witnessed this happening uh, in the United States and around the world where the crisis led people to, you know, protect themselves. And they went into like not collective uh, awareness or collective benefits, but protect yourself. And so if the climate emergency keeps spinning out of control, then it's going to be a dog eat dog world. And the kind of collective action that we need to win and succeed against these challenges is going to be harder to achieve. Well, you bring up a a very, very important point, and that's the very idea of collective action. The kind of hyper-capitalistic society that has become so fortified over the last 50 years has atomized our society. We have, you know, America at its best is both and. It's individual liberty balanced with a concern for the common good. And that's really what the government should be. It's a broker of those two things. Okay, as an individual, you can do whatever you want to do, be whoever you want to be, as long as it doesn't hurt um, uh, someone. The government is there to both protect your freedom to do that and say, hold on right there, buddy, if you are doing something that does not uh, help perpetuate the common good. That should be the government's role to make sure both are protected both individual liberty and the common good. We are now at a point where the very notion of the common good has been denigrated. It's almost like this quaint, quaint idea that no longer applies. So we have already been habituated to this dog eat dog. That's what hypercapitalism does. And when you have the majority of Americans, as we do now, living in a state of economic survival, it forces you into that. You don't even have the bandwidth to care about somebody beyond your own circle. And that's very, very dangerous. That's all the more reason why it should be a function of government to create the conditions where enough people can thrive that we can have the bandwidth to care about something beyond our own um, personal circle. 
Because you're right, it's going to be the Hunger Games on this planet if we let it get to a certain point. Yeah, so on that point about uh, the state of our country and the state of people just surviving, it's kind of leading to a situation where our democracy is actually teetering. And the idea uh, that our founders created in the Declaration of Independence and in other uh, founding documents are kind of being lost in the shuffle here. So I wonder whether you agree whether our democracy is teetering and whether your candidacy for presidency, how do you see that, uh, you know, transforming uh, the trajectory of our country and reconnecting to the root of of our founding uh, intentions? Unfortunately, I think it's worse than teetering. I think it's actually crumbling before our eyes. Uh, There have been reports from very prestigious institutions declaring for years now that for all intents and purposes, we're actually not uh, functioning as a democracy. We are functioning as an oligarchy. Now, what does that mean? Oligarchy means rule by the rich. If you look at the undue influence of money on our political system, you see that our Congress is little more at this point than a system of legalized bribery. And over and over and over again, you see legislators who on a practical level, do more to serve the goal of short-term profit maximization for their donors, their individual and corporate donors, than they do to serve the the interests of the safety, health, and well-being of their own constituents. So we're already there. Now, we have just enough. We have just enough of our fingerprints, democratic fingerprints, elections, and so forth, that it's easy to delude ourselves that it can continue at this weakened pace, but it actually can't. So we absolutely must shore up our democracy, and you're absolutely, that is a core reason why I'm running. I see our Declaration of Independence as our mission statement. And whether it's a personal mission statement or an organizational mission statement or a a nation's mission statement, these are the core principles on which you purport to stand. And anybody um, who understands the value of a mission statement knows that when you align your behavior, or in the case of a nation, your public policy, with the principles of your mission statement, you'll do basically okay. And when America has, we have done okay. When you deviate from your mission statement, you falter. Now, from our beginning, Paul, we have never fully manifest our mission statement. I mean, hello, the core idea is all men are created equal, and 41 of the 56 signers of the declaration were themselves slave owners. However, the, the trajectory of our history is such that over time, we have tended to self-correct. We responded to slavery with abolition. We responded to uh, the institutionalized suppression of women with, uh, uh, with um, women's suffrage and the 19th Amendment. We responded to the first Gilded Age with the establishment of the labor union. We responded to segregation with the civil rights movement. It's simply our turn. You are not Uh, living as a nation where you are honoring the idea that God gave all men inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when only a few of your citizens can afford easy access to health care, when only a few of your citizens can afford easy access to uh, education, when only a few of your citizens can, uh, can afford to live what even in the 1970s was considered a thriving middle class life. You know, in the 1970s, the average worker had decent benefits, could afford a car, 
could afford a home, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home if they wanted, and could afford to send their kids to college. We have so moved, once again, that massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% of our people. That is the opposite of the American ideal, which is here in this country, no matter who you are, if you work hard enough, you should have a shot. The problem in America is not that a few people can get very rich. Because if you work hard and people get rich, good for, good for you. That's not the problem. The problem is that for the vast majority of people, the chance to ever even come near real wealth creation is prohibited. And for millions of those people, they're locked out of that possibility by the time they're 10 years old. Under my administration, that core deviation from the Declaration of Independence would be passionately and vigorously repudiated. Uh, um, you're taking my breath away, so I'm just uh, pausing for a second here. I just want to get at the one of the things that I've been focusing on is racial equity in our country. And as you know, about three years ago, George Floyd was murdered and there was an awakening of some sort uh, that occurred. And at that time, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee introduced a resolution in the House uh, calling for a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission model an American version of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was uh, part of the healing of South Africa after the apartheid system was dismantled. And of course, there's been a long effort by African Americans in our country to fight for reparations. And that means not just economic reparations, but spiritual, political, legal, economic reparations. It's a, it's a broader concept. I wanted to hear from you about your view about whether as president you would support the establishment of a truth commission and would and how would you go about uh, uh, considering reparations. And the reason why I'm asking you about this is because I believe that this is a foundational flaw in the in our country where we've established a hierarchy of human value based on skin color. And if we don't dismantle that, we cannot unleash the full potential of our entire society to solve these challenges that we've been talking about. So I wanted to hear from you about, as president, what would you do to deal with this situation? Clearly, it's our foundational flaw. As I mentioned before, 41 of the signers of the Declaration were themselves slave owners. So that dichotomy has always been with us. This this almost bipolar aspect of American consciousness, where on one hand, we are founded on the most enlightened principles of equity and at the same time have always been generation after generation uh, infused with forces who usually for their own economic purposes have no intention of seeing the full embodiment or manifestation of those principles. I don't think the problem is with the American people. The problem is with the functioning of the U.S. government. The problem to me is not that after the George Floyd murder, there was not the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The problem is that there has been no serious police reform. So let's be very clear. A bunch of white people getting clearer about their own, uh, their own racist tendencies is very nice. But I'll tell you something. If you owe me $1,000, I'll feel better to know that, you know, you, you're sorry about it. But what I really want is my money back. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to me, is not the issue. The issue is a, is a system of reparations. We do not need um, John Con the late John Conyers, who was a friend of mine, 
uh, had put forth H.R. 40, which is, and the president has said that he supports H.R. 40, but Congress should do it. This is the classic way of kicking the um, can down the road. You're saying, oh, I support it, but they should do it. And also, all that H.R. 40 calls for at this point is looking at the evidence. Now, if John Conyers were alive, he would be the first to say, oh, give me a break. We at this point don't need any further evidence. We know what happened. Almost 250 years of slavery that was then um, that was then followed by almost 100 years more of institutionalized suppression of black people. As president, I would, and by the way, when it comes to truth and reconciliation and the work of racial healing on an internal level, I've been doing that work for 25 years. And I've written about it in my books. Now it's time to do the external work. You know, Martin Luther King said we need a quantitative shift in our circumstances as well as a qualitative shift in our souls. As president, I would call together uh, black leaders. We would have quite a weekend at Camp David, and we would actually start to hash out a plan. My plan uh, for reparations is an amount of money that would be dispersed over 20 years. And the, the dispersal of that money would be under the control of black leaders chosen a reparations council, intergenerational, people that come from government, uh, culture, arts, religion, business. And I think that white people are not the ones who should be deciding how that money is spent. It should be within the context of economic and educational renewal. And within that, um, it should be this, this reparations council that decides whether it is money given to uh, historically black colleges, whether it is money given to certain individuals who are descendants of slaves, that would not be for white people to decide. Um, that is the, the plan of reparations that I support. And like you, I don't think that this country can move forward until and unless we clean up this aspect of our past. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I think you're probably going to be the only presidential candidate in this, up, in this election season that we're in now that will take that position. And I don't even know if any other candidate in any prior election has ever articulated a clear vision like you just did for stepping forward on reparations. So do you, how do you think that will play in the political landscape? Well, I know how it played last time. I brought up reparations. I brought up reparations on the national debate stage. And then because I, uh, you know, and this is the value of being out there, because I brought it up, then the press was asking other candidates, and so they had to make a statement about it. Once I was no longer in the race, they didn't have to, and the press didn't ask. So that's all the more reason for people to understand. If I'm having a conversation that you think belongs in the national dialogue on a level that will actually get at the kind of attention to create political force mm -hmm. and actual manifestation, please support my candidacy at Marianne2024.com. And unfortunately, because money rules our system the obscene way that it does, that is what is involved uh, for people who want to see these ideas out there. Yeah, it's a sign of your political power, too, as people step in and, and donate and participate. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know for myself, I was always like frustrated about constantly getting emails for money. And I was always seeking pathways of engagement. I wanted to find a way to offer my energy and my ideas and all that as well. So I encourage you to think about going beyond just asking for money because people are eager to find a way to engage and build local chapters, build local movements that can, that can get behind your very transformational vision. 
Definitely. I mean, that, you know, that's, it's called volunteering for a campaign, obviously. And if you go to my website, just like anyone else's, you have the opportunity to volunteer as well as give money. At the same time, I think everybody needs to grow up a little bit about this, Paul. Um, you know, they'll say, you ought to have someone do blank. You ought to have someone do blank. Oh, really? Well, how do you think we should hire that person <laughs> who would be able to do blank? Right. So um, I think that it's less about thinking, well, there are other ways I can engage and more about people realizing even $5 can make a difference. Because in a camp, people need to understand that And when I said before, it's obscene. It is obscene. There are institutional forces in this society who can spend millions and millions and millions of dollars, even beyond. I mean, there are, this is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Someone like myself obviously is not going to be receiving corporate support. Hello. And that means that if we want to create a real wave of repudiation and rejection of that corporate dominance, we have to pay for it. Uh, we can't, you know, if you look at someone like uh, Bernie Sanders, he was not taking corporate money, obviously. You know, in the case of someone like a Bernie Sanders or me, corporations don't want to give us money, right? Nor do we want to receive it. But that means that uh, no one should underestimate uh, the role of enough people giving $10, enough people giving it $20. It worked in Bernie's case. He, he had enough money. Um, that was not the problem. But it was enough people realizing that their small donations could make that difference. I hear you. I, I, I agree with you on that. I want to give you a chance to help our listeners um, understand the origins, like why did you go forward with an economic bill of rights and why do you think that matters and how will you use that as a candidate and then as president to bring forward transformative policy and action? You know, Paul, you and I knew each other working on issues of poverty, results organization, et cetera. My career began, shortly after my career began, the AIDS crisis exploded onto the scene. And so from the very beginning of my work, I was up close and personal with human suffering. And I have, to the best of my ability throughout my career, shown up for people in times of crisis. I have not been silent about those situations. I have done what I could. I have founded nonprofit organizations and on every level of my being, tried to show up. What I began to notice about 20 years ago was that people's lives falling apart didn't seem so much to be the exception anymore. It seemed to be the rule. It seemed that I met more and more people throughout this country who had done everything right, who worked hard, who weren't told by a doctor you have a disease, who weren't learning of the death of a loved one, who weren't learning that their child was addicted. No, it was the natural tenor of the economic system within which they live mm. that they became that one in four Americans living with medical debt. They became that one third of America's workforce who live less than fifteen work on less than fifteen dollars an hour and cannot afford a place to live. They became one of those people who were rationing their insulin. They became one of those people living with tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And I realized that no amount of private charity, and I had been, and I have been involved throughout my career, nonprofit activism, as you and I both have. No amount of that can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. Hmm. And I began to realize that, you know, and then there starts to be this huge conversation about the mental health crisis. Hmm. You cannot overstate 
the role of economic, chronic economic anxiety and despair that that plays. You know, particularly, let's say young people. Paul, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in my 20s hmm. carrying tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And what did these kids accrue that debt for? Trying to make their lives better. Told by the system, get an education, you can close the uh, uh, wage gap. All they're trying to do is make their lives better. And the greed of these financial institutions, which took a system which until the 60s and the 70s in the United States, meant that in many states, people had access to free or near free college tuition at a public college university. But the way this hyper-capitalistic, malevolent form of our economic system that has developed over the 50 years works, it is like a heat-seeking missile for any place where there could be a profit center. And there is no uh, greater vulnerability to this than a place where people are desperate for something. People were desperate. Well, maybe, if I get a, maybe if I get an education, hmm. right? So I began to see that, no, this is not just the proverbial acts of God, you know, shit happens. No, no, no. This is the way our system operates now. And because of my career, it has taken me in a way that I think few people have in this country to substantial time spent with the richest of the richest, the most powerful of the powerful, and the poorest of the poor, the most disadvantaged and most powerless. Now, it's not about nice people versus not nice people. Hmm. Not every rich person is a greedy bastard. Not every poor person is wholly impure. This is not about personal, the way people hmm. are. That's not what this is about. It's about systems and how they operate. And at this point, the way our system operates, so much, not only money, it's more than that, opportunity to create money, opportunity to even get into the game has been moved into the hands of so few people that there is this 20% of Americans for whom the, the economic system basically works. And we're living on this island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. According to a CNBC uh, poll, over 70% of Americans say that they live with financial stress. It does something to your sense of personhood, and it creates exactly what you and I were talking about before in terms of the breakdown, the personal breakdown, the effect on people's lives, a kind of dog-eat-dog world that emerges from that and makes us very vulnerable, among other things, to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces such as fascism. Yes. So I have a personal question. Like, Do you ever get hopeless or despairing? And if you do... What do you do personally uh, to overcome that? I, I mean, I've read, I'm reading your books and I, I'm doing your daily meditation. So I get that stuff. But I want to ask you personally, like, you know, obviously you're sourcing that from a very uh, deep place. And so I just wonder if there's ever days where you just don't want to get out of bed and you, you're like frustrated, you know, over, over all this uh, situation that we're facing. Well, I learned a long time ago that when I practice what I preach, my life works pretty well. So if ever there was a challenge to practice what I preach, it's running for president. You wake up every morning and somebody's lying about you. Somebody's smearing you. 
somebody's attacking you, somebody's assaulting, insulting you. I read an article today and I thought, wow, if I had said that about another candidate who said something, I thought if I said that, I would be roundly mocked. Not that it was even a bad thing to say, but I just knew how it would have been contextualized if I had said it. The humiliation, the embarrassment. I took a long time to decide whether I would run again because I've been in the belly of the beast before. I knew this would happen. It's not like I didn't. So I was as emotionally prepared as you can get, uh, given that. Um, I do think having run before and having gone through that, Hmm. I have some emotional antibodies. You were talking about racism before. Before I ran for president, I certainly knew about racism. I knew about anti-Semitism, knew about homophobia. I knew a lot of these things on a very deep level. I understood. I never saw misogyny at work, Mm. like running for president. You know, I'm in England right now. They've had three female prime ministers. But you really do see when you run for president as a woman, I don't feel it just living as an American woman, but boy, running for president as a woman, the mockery, derision, jokes, insults that I don't think descriptions of my work that I don't think would be true if I were a man. So yeah, um, but I decided to do this. I know that many, many people agree with what I'm saying and millions more would agree, I know, if they knew about this campaign. So I'm on a tightrope. Somebody said something really interesting one day. She said, do you know who the most successful tightrope walkers are? I said, who? She said, those who do not have a net. Hmm. And I thought that was so interesting. You simply cannot allow yourself to go there. Hmm. And that's the emotional discipline that's involved. Hmm. I have told a story before. I sent a text to a friend whining, oh, the way they treated me, the way they talked about me, something. And he texted me back and he said, toughen up, buttercup. (laughs) And you know what? That's what I needed at that moment. So, yes, obviously it's well known, my belief in a higher power. To me, when you talk about revolutionary optimism, to me, that's what faith is. Hmm. I believe, uh, Cenk Ugar said something very interesting. He said, someone is going to break through. Whether that person is going to be me or not really is in the hands of the American people. Hmm. But someone is going to recognize that we must replace crass, soulless, unethical economic principles with humanitarian values and the principles of the Declaration of Independence as our guiding principle. And if, and this campaign is dedicated to articulating that, Mm-hmm. This campaign is dedicated to providing, as you said, among other things, a declara- uh, economic bill of rights as an agenda by which we would create fundamental economic reform, universal health care, universal uh, free tuition at state colleges and universities and tech schools, uh, child care, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay, housing and a living wage. Those things are granted to the citizens of every other advanced democracy. And people are waking up to the fact that something is very wrong, that they're not granted here. And it's not because it's quote unquote complicated, it's because it's corrupt. To me, there is value in this. 
I am saying, this is what's going on in this country. This is what I would do to fix it. And I am offering myself, body and soul, mm-hmm. to, if I am granted the honor of that lever of power, doing everything that I can to effectuate those changes. That is the part I can control. I can't control at this point how many people hear that message. That's up to the people who wish to support me or not. I can't control whether or not the American people would choose that. But that's the beauty of democracy. That's the business of the American people. The one thing I can control is that this option is provided to people. And that's what gets me up and at it and back into it every single day. The American Mm -hmm. people deserve at least to have this option. And to whatever extent possible, I'm providing it. Yes, I hear you. I feel you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you putting yourself out there. And I appreciate the energy and the strength, the emotional resilience and fortitude that you uh, de- are demonstrating on the campaign. I've I've watched those derisions occur. And I was talking to my wife and kids about the practice that I have about not taking things personally. And, you know, it's a practice. Um, and, you know, I'm reminded of the Gandhian quote of first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, then they fight you, then you win. So I feel like maybe we're living into the possibility that that's the pathway that you're on in your campaign. Um, And I I did want to ask you about your political positioning, because you did uh, mention Bernie's campaign, and he was a, a progressive in the Democratic Party, and he certainly had a big influence on that. And I wonder, I saw, I read the Time Magazine article that came out this week, and it's kind of like put you in that same lane. And I, I was wondering if that's, you agree with that positioning or are you positioning in the center for love, justice and peace where you can attract, uh, even progressive, uh, Republicans and even, uh, I always like wonder about the 50% of the, uh, eligible voters in America that don't vote at all. Those people that are completely checked out and disenfranchised. How can your campaign you know, go beyond where Bernie went to and get a broader swath of the American public that is, I think, craving and yearning for your vision. I'm not strategizing the way you just described. I'm simply trying to be myself and say the truth as I see it. In terms of economic values and principles and even agenda, I'm absolutely aligned with Bernie Sanders. I believe that the things that Bernie fights for are positions of love. He doesn't use that language necessarily, although when asked, he does. Yes, my natural conversation is one in which I point out that you feed the hungry child. Why? Because you love the hungry child. Mm. And I point out that if you love a hungry child, if, if you do love someone, then you do feed them if, in fact, they are hungry. And my hope would be what you just said, that people would hear that. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that all the polls show that Bernie Sanders would have won. Bernie Sanders would have beaten Trump in 2016. So I think a lot of Republicans did hear him. And I do believe that a lot of Republicans hear me. I can, I, I, I get that. I've heard many of them say so, and independents. My problem, of course, is that there is a real effort on the part of the Democratic corporatist establishment to nullify my voice. So you can't have a chance to be, you know, for Republicans to vote for you unless you win the Democratic nomination. Your only other option is to run as an independent, which is brings up a whole other can of worms, really. Yeah. So the last time a it was 1884, I believe, when a 
uh, sitting president was not the nominee of the party, if I have that history correct. So what you're taking on here is a big lift, right, to, you know, the party's getting behind Biden and you're coming in as an alternative option. So I would like to ask you, what is your pathway to victory? Like, how do you see this uh, as possible? And uh, how can you convince my listeners that this is the moment in American history where this transformation that we're seeking, that you're describing, your vision, your economic bill of rights, your commitment to racial justice, your commitment to gender equality, and all the things that you stand for, why is this the moment? And how will you do? How will you get there? How will it happen? Well, two th- a couple of things. First of all, you said the party is behind Biden. The majority of Democratic voters have said they want someone else to run. They want you to think the party is behind Biden. The DNC elite is behind Biden, and they're trying to shoehorn him in. So we can't know if the party is behind Biden unless there is a primary election preceded by debates so that the the Democratic voters can have an opportunity to hear what all three of us say. That's number one. They want you to believe that narrative. The party is behind Biden. They want you to believe that. But we actually don't have that unless we have uh, debates and have an equitable election. That's number one. This is a populist moment. This is a moment of populist rage. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. In 2016, there were two candidates who said to the American people, you have a right to be angry. Your rage is legitimate. The system is rigged against you. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. The difference was Bernie meant it and Bernie would have done something about it. Trump realized it was a thing to say in order to close the deal. Hillary said, let's continue the success of the last eight years. Mm-hmm. Many people who felt they'd been promised change, hope and change by Barack Obama did not feel that they had received it and resented that message. And that's why I believe all those polls said that Bernie would have won. Now, four years later, people were convinced, and rightfully so, that the threat of neo-fascism was so great that we had to vote against it. However, many of the promises that were made, having to do with, with raising the minimum wage, having to do with climate change, having to do with greater economic fairness, have not been met by the Biden administration. He has made incremental changes. There has been no fundamental economic reform. Therefore, that populist rage is still there. When you have this kind of populist rage, it will either express itself dangerously or wisely. Somebody is going to harness that rage. And so I say we need a positive populist peaceful revolution of justice, political revolution of justice and love. And that is what fundamental economic reform would establish. This country needs to make an economic U-turn, just tweaking it here and tweaking it there. You know, many of the people who point out how much Biden has done, but look how much he has done. And I say this with great respect, actually. Really? Because the people who are going on and on about how much he's done, those people ask them, they probably have decent health care. They probably can afford to send their kids to college. 
There are millions and millions and millions of people out there living with despair, economic despair in the richest country in the world. So I believe that what we need to do is say to those people, as Bernie said, you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm going to fix it as opposed to just be so afraid of the fascists, because a lot of those people are saying whether it's my it's fascism. Yeah, I don't want to see a fascist America. But then on the other hand, I'd also like to have health care. I'd also like to send my kids to college. I'd also like to have decent benefits. I'd also like to be able to unionize. So I believe that, as Franklin Roosevelt said, the amelioration of stress is not enough. We need fundamental economic reform. And that is what I offer. And that is what I will effectuate if I have the honor of um, being hired by the American people to do the job. Thank you, Marianne. Very inspiring. Thank you for your leadership. And thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to that fascinating conversation with Marianne Williamson, a 2024 presidential candidate. So before we go, let's take a moment for me to share a quick checkup and diagnostic review on how presidential candidate Marianne Williamson is living as a revolutionary optimist. First of all, Marianne has a deep faith in a higher power. She sources herself from a deep faith in God, and she intends to live from this place if she is elected president of the United States. She believes that someone will break through the crass, soulless economic principles driving our country, and she believes the time could be now with her candidacy. Second of all, Marianne is blessed with clarity of vision. She is extremely clear that she wants to be a progressive populist that will bring forward a new form of economic system in our country. And she has articulated a economic bill of rights that will transform our country from a country by the corporations and for the corporations into a country by the people and for the people. She has articulated this economic bill of rights, and she intends to bring that forward in her presidency. And lastly, I think Marianne is a revolutionary optimist because she is tough. She has the emotional resilience, the emotional discipline, and her experience in life and even her prior run for the presidency gave her what she called the emotional antibodies to deal with the opposition to deal with the misogyny and the negative uh, chatter that she has to overcome every single day. She said that one of her friends shared with her that she's living on a tightrope and that those that are living on a tightrope without a net are the ones that are most successful. So she is willing to be on the court. She has the courage and the bravery to walk that tightrope, to be the person that can put love at the center of our social, economic, and political systems. So without a doubt, Marion Williamson is a strong revolutionary optimist, and I wish her the best in her campaign for president. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from her in the days and months to come. Thank you. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. Revolutionary Optimism.
transforming the world one episode at a time.